0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's so good to be back with you again, whether you're watching on your phone or your television, whether you're in the kitchen or on the couch. It is great to be here this morning and to be with you. So may I just welcome you to our worship service this morning. Grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ to you this morning. Welcome to our service. If you don't know who I am, my name is Peter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bradfield and Ruffham Baptist Church. People call us BRBC, and we're a church that's all about loving Jesus together and helping others to do the same. So you're gonna hear a lot about Jesus this morning. So welcome to our service. We're not gonna have our Bible reading before James comes and speaks, and it's gonna be from John chapter 13, starting in verse 31. Again, John 13, starting in verse 31. I'm going to have Rebecca give our Bible reading this morning.
1: Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. That's the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 31 through to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another.
2: Great, great, great. Good to see you this morning, everyone. It is great to be together. It is great to connect. It is great to come around God's word, isn't it? Now, we are continuing on in our second part of our series, The Comforts of Christ. So if you're new to studying the Bible, let me give you just a little bit of a rundown. The big picture of where we're heading is is the New Testament begins with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of these four are like documentaries or biographies around the life of Jesus, showing this is who Jesus is, this is what he came to do, and this is why he's so significant. So we're in John's Gospel, and this is a biography doing exactly that. And so the first half of John's Gospel, this biography of Jesus, details a lot of the teaching of Jesus, but also some of the amazing miracles that Jesus does. But then when we get to chapter 13 of John's Gospel, there's this this pivot, there's this turn, and things suddenly change because we find ourselves in an upper room with just Jesus, and his disciples. That, that's what we find. We, we see them right here. And what's happening in this scene is that, that Jesus knows he's about to leave his disciples. Jesus knows the cross is just around the corner. He knows the resurrection is on the horizon. Jesus knows that a few days after that he's going to go to be with his heavenly father. So that means, and Jesus knows this, he's going to leave his disciples. He won't be physically by their side. So Jesus is giving them the need to know. Jesus is giving them the reassurances. Jesus is showing them the comforts that they can have when He's no longer with them. This part of John is known as the farewell discourse. And John devotes a lot of page space in his writing to what Jesus says before he leaves his disciples. Jesus is saying in this section, when I'm gone, this is what you have to lean on. Here's what I'm giving you for the hard and difficult road without me. Until you see me again, take these comforts with you on the journey without me by your side. So this morning, in part two of The Comforts of Christ, we're going to lean in on what Jesus lovingly leaves his disciples. You see, we'll see in this section that that Jesus leaves them with what he calls a new commandment. Now what we'll see is that this new commandment that Jesus leaves them is significant because at the heart of this new commandment, is one of the comforts that Jesus leaves his people. We find at the heart of this commandment a comfort of Christ that you and I must and can access today. So so the big question for us as we study this next chunk in these farewell moments, is, well, what does Jesus leave his people with? I mean, what comfort can we find in this portion of the farewell moments? Or maybe I could ask the question more specifically, why is this new commandment a comfort for Jesus' people? Now here's how we're going to work through this this morning. It's it's really, there's not much of a structure going on here like I normally do. I'm just going to work through bit by bit through the first couple of verses, setting the context, understanding what Jesus means as he introduces this new commandment. And then what I want to do is devote a lot of time in diving into what this commandment is all about. So we'll begin to understand it by looking at three key things, asking three questions about what we know about this new commandment. And then after all of that, we're going to gather the threads together and we're going to bring this down to earth in our lives and see what it means for us as Christians, followers of Jesus, as a church family today. That's what we want to see. Now, that's where we are heading. And we can't miss this. This, what Jesus says right here, is as relevant for today as it was the very second after he departed his disciples and went to be with the Father. So let's jump in here by looking at verse 31. Look at how this begins. When he had gone, Jesus said, stop right there. Hang on a second. Who is he? And where has he gone? Well, he is Judas. We see that from the verses that come before this. And he has gone to portray Jesus. Now, I wonder if you can imagine how how massive this would have been for John. Can you imagine writing this, this biography of Jesus, documenting who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and why he's significant? Can you imagine John writing this down years after it happened the thoughts and the emotions that would have rushed back to John as he recollected these events I mean John has just finished writing about Jesus's countercultural foot washing and his servant work but but then John turns to, turns our attention to Judas and John is keen to show us that Jesus knows and Jesus knew exactly what was going on See, see John sees this. John writes about it. John is recognizing the gravity of what went on in the upper room. Now, Jesus had been so clear through all of this in the foot washing that he knew he knew he would be betrayed. Jesus knew that And, and he knew that when when this betrayal was going to take place, things were going to unfold a lot quicker. That there would be the snowballing of the opposition against Jesus would get faster and bigger from now on. The aggressive resistance against Jesus was about to spiral out of control and, and there would be the, the frenzied, brutal cries for blood. You see, Judas's sinister, undercover networking means that Judas now has his silver and the religious leaders, well, they would have their man. So Judas is left to betray Jesus knows this. But there's a focus in this. But with Jesus, he's he's deliberately comforting his people. And he doesn't doesn't meander and he doesn't wane. There's a strange connection here. Both Judas and Jesus are fixated on their missions. Like, Like an intent kestrel hovering as it watches its prey. Judas, he's fixed on his ominous mission. He's unmoved by the cleansing compassion of Jesus, but Jesus too is fixed on his mission. His mission's different. He's communicating the comforts to his people. Now let's keep moving here. This next bit is hard to get our heads around, so let's do a little bit of thinking. Verse 31 and 32, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now this verse makes me feel a little bit dizzy. Maybe you too. I mean, there's one word that's repeated five times in there. Can you see it? The word glory. So what is glory? How are we supposed to understand this? Well, it's actually quite difficult to properly get our head around this word because in English we don't have a word or a concept that properly captures what this means. I mean we try to explain it, we try to describe it and we're doing our best as we do that. So so here's me trying to understand and explain God's glory. I think God's glory is this. My understanding of scripture, God's glory is the overwhelming significance of God's attributes on display and recognized. It might be better DA Carson defines it like this. God's glory is the revelation of God's splendid activity. He he writes that in his commentary on John. God's glory is the the revelation of God's splendid activity. So, So God's glory is when God goes public with his brilliance and his beauty and his power, and he's overwhelmingly amazing. So much so that a sight of God's glory stuns us, even when we catch a glimpse. He's beautiful, he's brilliant, he's completely ultimate. Psalm nineteen, we find the heavens declare the glory of God. Revelation chapter four, verse eleven. Worthy are you, our Lord, and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Second Peter chapter one, his divine power has granted us all things to pertain to godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Do you see the picture when the word glory is used? We can pick of many other verses throughout Scripture. It's God's perfect character on display. Beautiful. Unbelievably awesome. Stunning. So much so that His glory makes us tremble, feel overwhelmed, to shake at the knees, even when we begin to contemplate who He is. Do you see what God is like? He's that great. So let's make much of him. You see, God's glory, the stunning revelation of his splendid activity. But here's the big curveball. Jesus says, now. Now is the glory moment, right now. But hang on, only a few verses earlier, we were told that this is Jesus' hour. It's the hour of the cross. Well, hang on a second. How is this supposed to square then? God's glory, his stunning awesomeness, his unmatchable greatness, his splendid activity. Glory's about to happen because we know the cross is just around the corner. Wait, wait, witnessing God's overwhelming beauty and then the innocent Galilean God man bloodied on a Roman cross? God's glory? And the cross? Surely these two things can't go together, can they? What's Jesus saying? Well, it makes sense when we begin to understand the cross. You see, if God's glory is the revelation of his splendid activity, showing all that he is and his greatness, then there is no better place to understand and see God's glorious, splendid activity... Than at the cross. Because at the cross what we find is the the hidden. The upside down. The spiritually discerned way of seeing God's splendid activity. The cross then is the place where God's glory is clearly seen and experienced. The cross is the place where God's saving splendid activity is on display. The cross is the climax and the pivot of history. (laughs) That is where his stunning, splendid activity is. We know God has done something incredible for us in the cross and shown us who he is. You want to know God's glorious, perfect love? We go to the cross. We want to know God's glorious, perfect justice in action? We go to the cross. We want to know God's glorious, perfect holiness? We go to the cross. We want to know God's perfect wisdom in action. We go to the cross. We want to know God's perfect faithfulness in action. We go to the cross. You see, the cross is the means of our salvation. But in the Savior on the cross, we also see the grand display of God's saving, splendid activity. So we have to conclude from what Jesus is saying here. He's right. Jesus is right. This truly is the hour of God's glory right here. You know what some people say? I can't see God. I mean, how many times have I had someone who considers themselves not a Christian to say, look, I can't see God. I mean, I believe when I see him. I mean, let alone experiencing and seeing his greatness. Where is God? But doesn't the glory of the cross... Prove to us that it's all about where we're looking. Maybe we've aimed too high in our search for God. Only to find our sights must be set on the humiliation and sacrifice and the glory of the cross. Now, For a lot of us this is upside down. But this is where we see God's display of his characteristics and his kindness and his grace. Most clearly the cross is really where... His splendid activity is. So, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus this morning, I ask you to consider God's glory by going to the cross and seeing what it really means. Jesus understood, and the disciples were about to see it too. But we know in this upper room, this is all preparation for the disciples in the things they don't yet understand, but they will. So Jesus continues. Have a look in verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Do you see how Jesus addresses his disciples? What does he say? Little children. You know, nowhere in John's gospel do we read this specific word being used to describe Jesus' disciples. Let's not miss the affection and the care that Jesus uses in this term. It's like his disciples have been holding Jesus' hand as they follow him for the last few years. But now in these final moments, Jesus can't help but scoop them up into his arms and shower them with this affection. He doesn't say followers. He doesn't say acquaintances. He doesn't say companions, but children. You're mine and I care for you like my own. Now, what's really cool is that John does use this term in other places in the New Testament. In his letter of 1 John, he uses this term, my little children, several times. And, and this has led some theologians to conclude that, that this term that Jesus uses right here and the coming new commandment is so significant for John and captures him so much. That it forms the very foundation for the letter that he writes in 1st John. I can see that. You know what's happening in this, this farewell moment? John ends up writing a commentary of this moment in the upper room later on. It is so captivating, my children. But Jesus is saying here, I'm going away from you. I won't be here much longer. And we see Jesus having to repeat himself, don't we, a few verses down. And it's to the person who doesn't seem to get things the first time pretty often. Look at verse 36. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. You see, Jesus doesn't let his disciples wriggle away from the hard reality that he is leaving them. And again, this shows that that everything Jesus is doing in these farewell moments is preparing them for life without him. Physically by their side. My little children. Don't you get this? I'm going. I am going. So, so what I'm telling you is exactly what you need. When I'm not here. And then we come to the pivotal moment of this section. Verse 34 and 35. Jesus says this. A new commandment I give you. That you. Look at this. Love one another just as i have you, loved you you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another a new command jesus says so this is a listen up moment i don't miss this jesus is saying to them when i have gone A non-negotiable for you people, my children, is that you love one another. When I depart, a must-do in your lives is that you love each other. Now, now here's the crux of the comfort that Jesus is leaving them. What does he say? It's repeated. Love one another. Now, now we might look at this and think, well, well what Jesus is saying is quite quite short, isn't it? It's, It's quite stark, there's not much to it. I mean, why didn't Jesus why didn't Jesus put more flesh on the bones? I mean, if, if this was so important, can't we have more details? Maybe some more in-depth de- in direction. Please, Jesus, there's not much, is there? Well, here's where the goodness of Jesus is on display yet again. Because even right here, he does give us loads to be getting on with. He doesn't just leave us with something vague. Here's what I mean. In these couple of verses here, Jesus shows us, how we are to love he shows us who we are to love and he shows us what loving one another does so so why don't we look at each of those that that how to love the who to love and what loving one another does and and if you're a note taker let me help you out here we're going to look at three simple observations in this second one here so you can space that out on your page look look at the first one how do we love one another well jesus says it right here You know how to love because I've loved you. You see, Jesus grounds this command in the phrase, as I have loved you. And of course, we know this is so significant for John. He picks up on this in his first epistle later on in the New Testament, doesn't he? John gives a similar idea here when he writes. If you're wondering what loving one another looks like then we look to Jesus. John says the same thing, doesn't he? Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he says this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Do you see that? John is saying you, you wonder what this love looks like. You, you want a picture of love, then you just look to see how Jesus has loved you you we love one another what does that look like well jesus says as i have loved you you want a repi- you want a picture of love we go to jesus all right then if we are to love one another like jesus loves us does that mean in order to love people properly then we have to go and die on a cross i mean isn't that how jesus shows his love well, of course not. We, we, we don't atone for people's sins like Jesus can. But we can understand how Jesus loves us by reminding ourselves of what we explored last week. Remember the foot washing. Because the foot washing was Jesus unpacking the reality of his love at the cross. The foot washing was the explanation of the love-driven servanthood of Jesus' cross, wasn't it? So, so in that moment, Jesus was showing them what the cross was all about. His humble, servant-like washing from sin that was driven by his love. You see, Jesus was saying in the foot washing, wasn't he? You're going to need washing. So I will endeavor to do the best thing I know that you need... I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to give myself for that, and it will be at great cost to me, but it's going to be for your good. So we know from this section that the soundtrack of Jesus' love for us is, I will do you the greatest good, but it will be at great cost to me. So back here, Jesus is saying we we love one another, right? We, we, We love one another as Jesus has loved us. So we apply the same refrain to the way we engage with others. Just as Jesus has said to us, we say to others, I will endeavor to do you good, regardless of the cost to me. Whoever you are, your benefits and your interests are my priority. That's what loving one another means. Now sometimes we think this means we have to be best friends with everyone. We'll have to be friends with them to love them, right? Well, no, no. Friendship is a wonderful bonus in life. But it doesn't define the root of our behavior towards others. Friendship, great if it happens. But far deeper than that is love. And love always says, I will do you good. I will do you good regardless of the great cost to me and whoever you are. So Jesus shows us how to love. We love others like he has loved us. That's the picture of his love. That's the experience of his love. That's where we find the strength to love. Second thing here, who do we love? What does Jesus give us right here? He says, to love one another. Now, there's three things, like I said, I want us to look at here. Firstly, in regards to who to love, Jesus doesn't give many specifics, does he? I mean, there's no statement on the kind of personalities we are to love. Jesus' category is really broad. He says, each other. He doesn't feel the commandment with conditions. Love one another, but only up until a point. <laughs> love one another when it's easy. Love each other, but when they hurt you and annoy you, you don't have to. Or, No, it's far simpler than that, which makes Jesus' new command as broad as possible. It means we can't just just love and serve and seek the good of those who we think are nice. (laughs) It means we can be selective and partial. It means that our love cannot be a condition or be conditioned by what we get in return from others. It means that the hard to love people are still the recipients of our good endeavoring. Jesus is saying, "We we can't be picky about who we love like we're selecting the color of paint to go on our living room walls. We got love the people who do say thank you and the people who don't. The people who are careful and the people who are careless. The people who build us up and the people who consciously or unconsciously hurt us. The ones with baggage and the ones who don't let us in. The aggressive ones and the gentle ones. The ones who chip away and the ones who encourage us. You see, the whole messy church family is included in this second thing about the who who we love well one another and this command applies to now what do i mean well jesus doesn't say wait until everybody has sorted out their problems now wait until you've had 40 hours of counseling or or wait until you've eliminated your bad habits no the command is immediately alive and still for us today Now, now this is helpful for us that we love now we love one another now today because often we end up loving the idea of what church could be tomorrow more than we love the messy people in our church today. We become so distracted by the possibilities of church perfection in the future that we find ourselves so frustrated and find it impossible to love one another today. It's a dangerous place to be. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in that vein. He says, he says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest and sacrificial. What does he mean? He's saying, well, we need to speak the language of love to one another today. If if we only love the perfect idea of our church family, just the idea, then we'll end up hurting people with our frustrations. We'll do damage to the church around us if we're soured and cynical about what everyone else isn't and what they should be. No, no, love one another. The who is for today. Now, the third thing under this who question. Well, it says one another. That's what Jesus says. But I know he's talking about the disciples, so... So, loving inside of the church, I mean, what about the rest of the world? That's the question, right? Aren't aren't Christians supposed to love everyone? And we're not supposed to be a sectarian community, cut off from the world, only dealing with each other. I mean, isn't a healthy church, a church with open doors and and a heart for people beyond the church? On into the community? Don't we engage motivated by love in the world? Absolutely. But these two areas, loving people in the church and loving people outside of the church, these two arenas aren't detached in John's writing. Loving one another is a way of loving the world. Because when we love one another, when we do that well, it proclaims something huge to the watching world. These aren't completely separate. Number three is going to explain it. So number three, our third question. What does loving one another do? Well, the simple answer is, it gives a powerful proof. You see what Jesus says right here. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. So, so loving one another, it gives proof that we are changed. When we love one another, it gives evidence of the new birth. It's like a litmus test of our changed heart and union with Jesus. When we are a part of him, When we are one with Jesus, love is a growing area of our lives. But what Jesus is saying here, loving one another also gives proof to the watching world that you belong to me. Everyone will know. This means then that our love for each other gives a clear message to the world of who Jesus is and how he changes us. Loving one another is the great apologetic. It's a clear answer to the question, does Jesus make a difference? It's a game changer. So that means a way we can love the world well is by loving one another like Jesus loves us. We serve the world with the beauty of Jesus by showing an utterly uncommon and supernaturally sourced kind of a love. We must never underestimate the power of the way we treat others and what that says. Everything we do proclaims a message of what's most precious to us. Jesus seems to make the same case just a couple of chapters on in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, I in them and you in me. They may experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. So Jesus is saying, even in this prayer, what they do, speaking about his people, says something to the world about what our God is like. So one of the best ways we can make Jesus compelling and mesmerizing to the world is by evaluating the love that we have for our imperfect church family, imperfect me included. The best way you can love the world is to love each other in a spectacular way. Now let's take all of these threads that we've looked at this morning from this text. Let's bring this down to earth. Because in these final, important, painful, significant farewell hours, Jesus gives his disciples something massive. You see what he's saying? When I'm gone, you must love one another. You see what Jesus is saying? When I'm gone and I'm not by your side, you will have each other. So here's the big take home for us today. Let's connect these dots in this section of John's Gospel, Jesus is preparing his people for life without him. So we have to conclude something really cool from this. One of the comforts that Jesus left his church, one of the comforts of Christ is you. Where's the comfort of Christ today? Where did Jesus leave his comfort? You. You, saint. You are the embodied presence of Jesus' love to the people around you. Jesus' love in you, Jesus' love through you. Jesus is saying, look, when I'm gone, you will have each other. You will be the comforting, transforming presence of my love. You, you love one another. Now we asked at the beginning the question, what does Jesus leave his people? Where's the comfort? Well, the answer to that question is one word, it's you. Now, isn't this a great moment then? Jesus is calling us to love one another. includes me and you. It's a good moment to evaluate and sift the quality of our relationships in our church family. Have you been moved to do good at great cost for others? Do you realize that one of the very real comforts of Christ in our church is you? do you see that you're that comfort is this jesus-driven love a priority for you let me ask some more helpful questions to help us sift our church relationships here what is the quality of the way you love others are you loving in your listening are you loving through your generosity to others are you chomping at the bit to reach out when there is a need? Do you lovingly champion and encourage others and reject gossip? Are you lovingly patient in the face of hurt and annoyance? Do you, do you approach people, move towards them regardless of what they will do for you? Is, is, is our service an act of love or a shallow performance? huge question this what is proven to the watching world about jesus by the way we relate with others in our spiritual family now well, the truth is when we ask those questions for a lot of us our answers are going to be maybe sometimes i hope kind of i fail and i get it really wrong so, so can we all be reminded this morning That Jesus went to the cross for our failed loving one another. For our bad one anothering. And at the cross, Jesus got to love one another right. And it's because of his cross. And it's by his grace. And it's in faith in Jesus. That we can now continue afresh to learn and to lean in on and to participate in the love of Jesus. Because we know at the cross... We, his children, can hear this again because of the cross. We can now realign our own hearts and remind ourselves afresh that we are loved by Jesus as I have loved you. And because that's a reality in our lives, we get to love one another. Now we see this morning, we've found Jesus saying, when I'm gone and I'm not by your side, you will have each other. We've seen Jesus leave one of his comforts for his church. But importantly, we have seen one of the comforts of Christ is his love in you, his love to you, and his love through you. We're commanded it. This is a big deal. Love one another. So may we be the kind of people who prove the life-transforming reality of the good news, by the way, that we love one another. Let's pray and ask for God's help in this, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these farewell upper room moments. And Father, we're stunned by the fact that we, we can be the comfort of Christ. Father, we know this is only possible Because of the way in which we have been loved. As I have loved you. Father we confess that way too often we get this wrong. We are inattentive. We can be dismissive. We can be cold. We can be selfish. Father we pray that by your grace you would strip away that in our lives. And replace it. With a keen knowledge of Jesus' love for us. And the reality of Jesus' love through us to one another. It's the best thing for us. It's the best thing for our church. And it's the best thing for the world. So Father, we pray you would mark our church by an uncommon and an extraordinary kind of a love. Help us by your Holy Spirit. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been really, really good to be together this morning. As we go, may we be a people who prove the reality of God's splendid saving activity. The good news, by the way, that we love one another. So go in peace, saints.